life. Uh, today is kind of the, as we're again moving back to um, things back to normal, we opened up our second KidZone class, and this is for ages three to five. And so if you have a three to five-year-old with you and you're thinking, I'd like to put them in that class, you're welcome to uh, because it's now open. Um, or if you're joining us online um, and you would like to do that in future weeks, if you're able to be here in person, uh, you have access to that. Or as you're inviting friends or family that have little kids, uh, they we have several KidZone classes opening. Hopefully in the future, we'll begin to roll out having the nursery class open as well. But for now, it's the three to five-year-olds and then the older kids. Um, next week, we're going to be doing our parent-child dedication. And so that's going to be during service on Mother's Day. And so I encourage you uh, to be here for that. It'll be a fun time. Feel free to invite family and friends uh, for those of you that are um, dedicating your child. And even if you're not dedicating your child, feel free to invite family and friends because it'll be fun either way. Um, and then last but not least, uh, if you also inside your program, there's the little card for, um, for offering. You're welcome to use that. And if you decide to use that or if you decide not to use that, if you're not, there's several ways to give. You can give online or you can also just put it in the offering basket over there by a guest resource table if you want to do that um, on your way out. And so thanks for joining us this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we will continue into worship. Father, thank you so much for uh, this group of men and women here that um, are spread out just all over here in the L.A. area um, with different jobs, different ages and stages, and yet one of the commonalities for many of them that you've brought us together is because we have a relationship with you or we're seeking out um, what that might look like to have a relationship with you. And so I really do pray that today you would really um, be honored through the words of our mouths and just the uh, meditation of our hearts. I also pray that you would just really be able to connect people with one another and they would just be refreshed um, and enjoy the time with one another as they move forward into another week. And so I pray that you'd really help us to have just engage minds and engage hearts. Um, pray for all the teachers in the kids' own area as we're starting up the new class that that would just go really well and the kids would have a really uh, helpful and enjoyable time there. So we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh. 
to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Dear God, we welcome you here today. Dear God, despite whatever is going in our lives, you are so good, you are so present, and you are so strong, and you are so majestic and real. Lord, we hold on to the promises that you said, and I pray, Lord, that we open our hearts today and receive you, receive your word, understand who you are, and also be able to share that with others. I thank you, Lord, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can please be seated. We're going to welcome John, John up for the message, yeah. <laughs> Everyone can be seated, except John. Do we have a little stand or anything? Do we have a music stand or something? Well, good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all. Thank you very much. And uh, Heidi and I are just so blessed to be able to share fellowship with you and, uh, and to worship together and enjoy the presence of the Lord together and get to know some of you. So uh, thank you for embracing us into, you know, in these times. And just uh, you're welcome. I appreciate that very much. Those of, you, if, those of you who haven't met me before or haven't, weren't here when I preached here a couple of times before. My name is John Taylor. I am, uh, if you're wondering about the accent, it's kind of mid-Pacific, mid-Atlantic because I was born and grew up in Australia. I uh, spent many years as a missionary in England and now I've been uh, teaching seminary for many years in America. So there we go. It's uh, one of those things. And my wife Heidi is from Orange County, grew up there and I met her in England and we were both missionaries. And uh, by the way, those of you who want to be a missionary, marry a missionary. Just a word of advice. Uh, because uh, when, the, when, those, uh, when a, a non-missionary and a missionary marry, the non-missionary always wins. So I'm just telling you. So uh, you don't have to marry someone with the identical call that you have in God, but it has to be compatible. And uh, that's important. So if that's for anybody today, just receive it. And, uh, and God will provide the right person for you. But that's not the topic we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about uh, this quite amazing passage in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. It's on the notes here if you have those. I'm going to read it out. It's a, a long passage, 20 verses. But let me tell you something. What I'm about to read is far more important than anything that I will go on to say about it. This is the scripture. This is the inspired word of God. This is what Mark wrote about Jesus. And every word of this is true and every word of this is inspired by God and it's absolutely vital that we listen to it, let it soak into our minds and our hearts. And as I said, everything I'm going to say about this is simply trying to explain, elaborate, interpret this is the word of God that I'm about to read. So that's why we're going to do it and read the whole passage and uh, read it thoughtfully. 
they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and well, people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demonized man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demonized man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demonized begged that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them, how much the Lord has done for you and what, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. You might have noticed I just altered a couple of words there if you're reading along on the text. And that's because uh, in the ESV I read here, the English Standard Version, and in most modern translations, it uses the expression demon-possessed or possessed by demons, or something like that. And let me just tell you something. You know, I've got the Greek in front of me here, and there's no word for possession in the Greek text. Uh, it, the the uh, phrase possessed by demons is never used in the Greek New Testament, uh, which is underlying our English translation, or any translation. So the word is probably better just translated like I translated it, just demonized. And, uh, which, because possession, at least in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, when these translations are being written, possession implies uh, ownership and total control. And uh, that's not necessarily the case with everybody that Jesus meets who has, has a demon uh, or has an evil spirit or unclean spirit. Uh, I want to point out one other thing too, just in terms of terminology, you'll notice that this man... Uh, has an unclean spirit, according to Mark, uh, but later it says he's demonized. And in the Gospel of Mark, pretty much the term demon and the term unclean spirit are used interchangeably. Uh, and so there's no distinction between what they are. They, they are different ways of describing or pointing to the same thing, just in case you're wondering. And uh, I think the term unclean spirit would have particular resonance in a Jewish culture uh, where in the first century, where issues of purity and uh, ritual purity and uh, holiness before God are very important. And the, the evil spirits are seen to and understood to be defiling and uh, create impurity in some sense. 
So that's just by way of, uh, of uh, explanation before we get into what we're going to say about all this. Um, this is a strange passage. Let's be, let's, you know, this is a very odd passage. So many things in here. What a strange world it is. Uh, unclean spirits, whatever that means. We've got, we've, got, we've got unclean spirits. We've got oaths. We've got demons who speak. We've got demons who enter pigs and pigs who rush into the lake and are drowned. What kind of world is this that we enter when we read Mark 5? Does that sound like your world, the world that you're living in? And we, as a product, most of us here as a product of a, a kind of rationalist education uh, and a naturalist mindset, right, find it very odd to dive into the pages of the Bible and find these things happening with oaths and angels and demons and spirits and curses and blessings and, and deliverance and all these odd things that are going on. It seems like a whole, not only a whole nother time 2,000 years ago, it seems like a different world altogether, like something out of a fantasy movie or book. Let me tell you something. This world that we read about in Mark 5, this is the true world. This is not the entire picture of the world, but it's the world as it is and it, as it was and as it is. This is Jesus' world. You're just living in it, right? This world is Jesus' world. You are just living in it. And it's not the Bible that's got it wrong about the nature of reality and the nature of truth and the existence of, of spirits. And, and it's, it's our modernist mindset or postmodernist mindset that has rejected many of these things in the Bible as somehow the product of a, of a uh, you know, pre-modern education or the product of something uh, out of the myths and legends books. This is the true world. A world in which evil spirits exist, but also the world in which they are overcome by the word of Jesus. This is a strange world indeed, but it is the world today. It just may not look like it, but it is. That's the world that we're living in. This is Jesus' world. We are just living in it. We think about the context of this passage, and if we took the time, we could go back to Mark chapter 4 and see what happened right before this. And the immediately prior story is Jesus crossing the, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in an open boat, and there's a huge windstorm that threatens to swamp the boat and drown them all. And Jesus is woken up by the disciples because he's sleeping through all this, and they said, you know, don't you care about us? We're dying. And he says, you know, and he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and everything's peaceful. And he, he tells them, where's your faith? You know, have you, and why are you afraid? Haven't you got any faith? What we have then is Jesus being revealed as having authority over the dangers 
of creation. In fact, he's got authority over creation itself, speaking to the wind and the waves. And that's, of course, in the Old Testament, very, that's a divine authority. That's authority that belongs in this. If we could read it in Psalm 107, a number of other places where Jesus spoke, sorry, where God speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him. And this is something that Jesus does here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this passage deals with Jesus' authority over unclean spirits and over evil. And then if we go on, we're going to see the very next passage is where Jesus defeats death itself by raising some, a little girl from the dead. And he defeats illness and sickness by, uh, by healing a woman who's had a, uh, a long-term illness. This is an incredible passage uh, all, you know, from Mark at the end of Mark 4 to the end of Mark, from that all the way through chapter 5. Incredible passage showing Jesus defeating the enemies of our, of our world. Evil and chaos and death and illness and all these things that stand, uh, that, that come as deadly in our, in our world. And Jesus defeats every one of them. And this is not an, even though it's an unusual passage in some respects, it's not all that strange in the context of reading of the Gospel of Mark. Because in Mark, there's quite a lot of talk about Jesus and evil spirits, or Jesus, he doesn't actually call them evil spirits, he calls them demons or he calls them unclean spirits. But uh, Jesus and, and Satan and so on. So in Mark, Jesus resists Satan's temptations. In, in Mark, Jesus commands the unclean spirits with authority. They obey him. In Mark, Jesus sets people free from demonic power. In Mark, Jesus gave his disciples the authority to cast out demons. And, uh, and in Mark, Jesus was frustrated because his disciples couldn't cast out a demon when they should have been able to. And he said, how long do I have to put up with you lot? <laughs> That's what he said to them. And he was frustrated at their unbelief. Uh, and in Mark, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by Satan's power. And of having, he's accused himself, not only of being crazy, but of having an unclean spirit. So there's a lot of what we might call spiritual warfare going in Mark. And Jesus wins in these occasions. And, uh, and so this is, a, in, in Mark is showing us who Jesus is and what he's like. And whenever you read the Gospels, you're going to have this question, what's this telling us about Jesus? Because the Gospels are all about Jesus. And you can hardly go wrong in any passage in the four Gospels by asking this question, what is this saying about Jesus? Now, when we, when we read the Bible, we often want to ask, you know, where am I in this text? Where, where does it relate to me? Where, I want to find myself in the Bible. And that's natural, that's okay. But before you find yourself in the Bible, find Jesus in the Bible. Find what the Bible's wanting to tell you about Jesus. And then, <laughs> then, you can ask him, where do I fit in this story? So, with all that by way of context, let's get right into the passage. The first few verses describes this man and uh, as Jesus 
and, and it comes out, gets out of the boat onto the land on the eastern side, on the southeastern side of the, the Sea of Galilee there. Uh, he gets met by a man who comes out of the, out of the tombs. And uh, he is in, in deep trouble, this man. He's, uh, he's in great trouble indeed. He lived in the tombs. He had an unclean spirit. And he, couldn't, he was violent. He, had, he was so powerful energized by demonic power that uh, he could break chains and he could even smash shackles that were put upon him. Uh, quite extraordinary. And no one was able to subdue him. This passage really tells us about the true nature of evil. We're talking today, remember, about when evil meets Jesus. Let's, first of all, this passage describes what evil really is like. This is a man who is living alone. Evil is ultimately isolating. You know, we might think of uh, sometimes in popular culture, you know, we picture hell as a kind of party organized by the devil. Uh, but really it's not. And if uh, in C.S. Lewis's vision of, of hell, it's, you know, the, the great divorce, it's a, it's a Hell is a place where you live further and further apart from one another until you, there's no one around and you're totally isolated. This is an, a man alone. Not only is a man alone, he's a man who is controlled by impulses beyond his own strength that he just can't subdue. Evil wants to get a hold of you and control you. Evil wants to isolate you. Evil and this is a man who is self-destructive. He is cutting himself with stones. And uh, he's living a, t a, a life of, of which is going to only to end in one way. He's going to die at some point. Uh, and, uh, but he's cutting himself. He's injuring himself. And, this is a, and so evil is self-destructive. And, and it's destructive to the human person to the body and soul. And evil is angu in anguish, is anguishing. It's, it creates great torment and anger. And this, all night, he's in the mountains and on the tombs, he's crying out. And this picture of this man living in the cemetery is just, or, you know, it's so heart-wrenching. This man had a mother and a father. And, you know, this man has a family, and yet he's just become like a monster. And this is what evil is really like when it is fully released into the world. It's not attractive. There's, no, there's nothing attractive about the darkness of evil when you see it fully realized in the life of a person like this, as the unclean spirit has got a hold of him. This is the true nature of evil. This is the man who comes to meet Jesus, and yet still a man, still a man. And so what happens when evil meets Jesus? Well, the first thing to say here is that he runs to Jesus, which is interesting. And I don't think scholars are, you know, are totally in agreement about whether this is the spirit kind of running him to Jesus or whether this is him running to Jesus. Uh, he doesn't seem to have the ability to even to speak for himself. 
But perhaps he had enough will left to run to Jesus. And I think that's the way I, I see this. If all he can do is run and kneel at the feet of Jesus. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Listen, if there's, if you want to take even just one little thing home from this morning. Run, don't walk to Jesus. Run, don't walk to Jesus. When you are struggling with evil, trouble and anguish, suffering, run to Jesus. Even if you don't know how to say what you should say. If you don't know, even if you can't speak, run to Jesus. But evil, so as he runs to Jesus, we find out something about evil. First of all, we find out that evil reacts to the presence of Jesus. Evil reacts to the presence of Jesus. You know, I was once t uh, speaking in a uh, university context uh, to a, a Christian group at a, at a university, and uh, they had publicized this event for people who weren't uh, just members of the, of the group, and quite a lot of people came, and I was going to talk about uh, Christianity and the occult. Uh, and so there was all sorts of people out there in the crowd, and the, uh, the believers on campus had organized a kind of prayer chain, or no, a prayer group, that the whole time this meeting was happening in, a, in, a, in an auditorium, uh, they had a group praying in the room at the back the whole time for everybody who was going to be there, because they wanted to reach people for Jesus. Um, but it turns out there was another group also uh, doing a kind of prayer in the lobby outside. There was a group of witches who were in, in there doing their little thing in a circle and praying uh, to, to their gods against what was happening in the meeting. And uh, then it turns out that there were also occultists who had come to hear what, had been, what, what was going to be said. And, uh, and I, at, at a point in the message when I was listing... Uh, just some s certain kinds of occult practices that are anti-God and anti-good and, and so on and that are damaging to the humans. Uh, suddenly this, these two girls stood up and, uh, and started shouting. And uh, they actually were three of them. Then they started shouting and they, they wanted me, I had, the problem was this, I had not named their particular variety of witchcraft. And you didn't mention that. You know, they, they, they really wanted to be acknowledged. And I wouldn't name it. But they were reacting. They just couldn't keep quiet. They were reacting. And they got, whatever spirit was energizing them, they were was upset because it had not been named. And uh, they wanted to interrupt the course and interrupt the whole procedure. Uh, and so, but they're reacting to the presence of God as the believers gathered together and people were praying. And something in them wanted, wanted was just, couldn't help reacting. It's, it's interesting. Evil here shouts and blusters. As he, he comes in, in verse 7, he's shouting with a loud voice. He's just shouting and evil. That's what evil does. Evil reacts to goodness and to God and to the presence of Jesus with shouting and blustering and noise. 
And what does it say? He says, what have you got to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is fascinating because in this text, Jesus' identity is revealed. This is a key little line in our passage. You know, Jesus is, is being shown to be, is being revealed by Mark. You know, at this level, the demons know the truth. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. This, by the way, the Most High God is a, is a phrase, a, a description of God. It's used quite a lot in the Old Testament in Hebrew, El Elyon, or sometimes just Elyon. Uh, but uh, it was also a term for, for God that was sometimes used in the Greco-Roman world of the Eastern Mediterranean in the first century where a gospel is set. That was the, the idea of God being the most high was often used by Gentiles about the God of the Jews, the God of Israel. And so this man, by the way, is probably a Gentile. He's living on the eastern side of Galilee, Lake of Galilee uh, in the Decapolis area, which is largely inhabited by Gentiles and, uh, and not by Jews. So he, the, the demon understands who Jesus is. But listen, evil sometimes acknowledges the truth only to dismiss it as irrelevant. Evil acknowledges the truth sometimes only to dismiss it as irrelevant. He says, what have you got to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Wow! You know, uh, one time I was doing some door-to-door uh, -door evangelism with a team in, in a city, and, uh, and we, we, did, we took a survey. The way we did door-to-door -door evangelism was with a survey. We were asking people questions about their beliefs and things and try to engage them in gospel conversations. And uh, this, uh, we discovered that we asked people, who do you think Jesus is? And we had a list of alternatives, and then, uh, you know, if you had none of those you could put something else in. One of the alternatives was he's the son of God. We discovered that the vast majority of people believed that Jesus was the son of God. You know, who is he? Is he, you know, good teacher? Oh, we had these, these things and son of God. Oh, yeah, he's the son of God. About 75% of people that we talked to believed that Jesus was the son of God. Uh, almost none of them were serving him. Almost none of them were serving him. They were prepared to acknowledge the truth about who Jesus is and yet dismiss it as irrelevant to their lives. That's what evil does. You know, I, there was a guy that we were witnessing to when we had a Christian coffee house in, uh, in, uh, in the southwest of England there. And uh, this guy was called Jimmy. He was uh, from, Scot from Scotland, and I'm not going to try to imitate his accent but he was, uh, he, was, uh, he was an alcoholic and uh, he would turn up at our coffee house and, you know, when we were trying to do outreach and he would, he would drink coffee and uh, he would eat our food and he would uh, tell us, you know, that he loved Jesus and he'd say, Jesus is my friend. And then, uh, so he was doing this one night and then he decided he didn't like uh, what uh, some of us, someone said to him about the gospel. So uh, he went off and he found... Uh, an old toilet that had been dumped somewhere in, in, a, in a pile of trash 
and he, took, he got that old toilet and he threw it through the plate glass window of the coffee house. So this is a man who says Jesus is his best friend. It's a, but let's face it, all of us are guilty often of such contradictions, maybe not so dramatically, but we can all be just as guilty of that kind of contradiction where we are prepared to acknowledge the truth, but actually in reality we dismiss it as irrelevant. And that's one of the subtle dangers. It's a deception to believe or acknowledge who Jesus is, but decide that he has nothing to do with you. It's a deception to believe or acknowledge who Jesus is, and then to decide that he has nothing to do with you. We also see in this passage, evil tries to dominate. The, the, the demonized man says to Jesus, I adjure you, I, ad, ad, the word is, a, it's, un, it's an unusual word, A-D-J-U-R-E, adjure, I adjure you by God, he says, do not torment me. This actually is an oath formula. Uh, that is being used, and it was standard practice by exorcists, people casting out evil spirits, to use this formula, this, this way of speaking to the evil spirit, uh, and with the name of the, of the one that they're claiming as their authority in there, this is an evil spirit claiming God's authority, I adjure you by God, and trying to put Jesus under oath not to torment him. How about that? Evil here, the evil spirit is trying to dominate Jesus. He's trying to tell him what to do. He's actually commanding Jesus and he's doing so in God's name. Evil tries to dominate. The same kind of formula is used in Acts 19.13 by some exorcists who are trying to cast out an evil spirit. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Same, exactly the same formula. It is standard. This is irony indeed. To use an exorcism formula to tell the exorcist not to cast it out. To try to, it's, you know, this is what, it's, it's the demon trying to tell Jesus to go away and trying to do it uh, with God's name. Evil uses the name of God in vain. It's irony indeed, and of course, uh, sacrilege to invoke the name of God in this way in vain. And that, but not only is he trying to command Jesus, he's also at the same time playing the victim. This spirit is playing the victim. He says, do not torment me. Now, just who is being tormented here? Who is being tormented here? This is, this is a man who's being tormented day and night to the point of self-destruction and uh, isolation and living this horrible life on, on the, among the tombs. This, a man in anguish. Who's actually being tormented here? This is also irony. But it is typical of evil to play the victim. That's, by the way, something we all need to be aware of, right? Uh, when, uh, when, when we be careful when we play, the, we play what we might call play the victim card, when we claim to be the one who's being 
uh, you know, being tormented when really we're the one being the tormentor. But that's the nature of evil and certainly the nature of the evil spirits. So evil here is resist. What does evil do when, in the, when it meets Jesus? Number one, it reacts. Number two, it resists, right? Number one, it reacts. We've seen that. And number two, it resists. And that's what it's doing by putting an oath on Jesus or trying to, by commanding him, by playing the victim card. All of these things are the evil spirit reacting and then resisting. And in verse 8, we get the explanation, a further explanation, because Jesus had said, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Actually, the Greek verb here suggests action in process. It's not just uh, he said once, but he, he was saying, he kept saying. The, the spirit is putting up his fight. Jesus just keeps quite calmly insisting on his, on, that the demon has to leave. So notice how now in the story, the initiative and the focus switches to Jesus. And notice the second thing. Jesus distinguishes between the unclean spirit and the man. Jesus sees the man behind, or at least the man, whose life has been dominated by this unclean spirit. He looks and he sees that person. This is so, so important. When people sin, they, you know, they're sinners. But Jesus always sees the person and he wants to deliver that person from the sin and the evil and everything that consumes them. Jesus sees the person. He sees the man. And he commands the evil spirit to leave. He insists, in fact, he, keep, he just insists. He doesn't take no for an answer. He doesn't let the spirit distract him from his purpose. He insists on his way. You know, when we were, uh, when we, our children were young, we lived next to a family that were not Christians, and our little girl was in the backyard, and uh, they were trying to mock, the, her, the, the children of the next-door neighbor family were trying to mock her, uh, her faith in, in the Lord over the fence, the back fence between our two gardens there at the back of the house. And so they were going, they were doing a little chant, uh, the kids in the next-door neighbor's backyard going, Jesus isn't true, Jesus isn't true, kind of this typical childish thing, uh, mocking her belief in Jesus. And she just kept saying, and she was about five maybe, or four, she just kept saying, five I suppose, she kept saying, no, you're wrong, he is true. <laughs> I just kept saying it until they gave up. Evil wants to impose its will. Jesus insists that it's his way that has to be followed. And we can never, ever give in to the evil purposes. Now, the next thing that happens in verse 9 is that Jesus identifies the evil. But he, he says this by asking the man, what is your name? Now, some people think this is Jesus trying to identify the name of the Spirit because that was a kind of part of first century technique for dealing with evil spirits, was to unclean spirits, was to find their name and that gave you a kind of authority over them. Uh, so that's possible. That could be happening. But I think what's happening is Jesus just wants to know the man's name. I think this is actually uh, 
Jesus, showing Jesus concern again for the person. He asks his name. Now, the man still can't speak for himself. It's actually the Spirit who answers in a kind of boastful way. My name is Legion, he says, for we are many. And, of course, Legion is not really a name, is it? Uh, it's just a number. It, a legion was a, a unit of the Roman army. It was the largest unit in the, uh, in the, in the Roman army. It consisted of anywhere between you know, four to 6,000 men. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that there were you know, 6,000 or 5,000 demons in this man, uh, but there were a lot. There were many, and there were 2,000 pigs, which, uh, which rushed into the sea, you know, into the lake a little bit later. So uh, this is a kind of boast, not a name, but it at least is a, is a kind of name. And let me, what we have now, and I just want to point out that this, this spirit has been speaking all along. Evil has a name. It's personal. Evil is not just a principle. Evil is, uh, evil is not just a principle. It's not an impersonal force, such as in the Star Wars series, right? Evil is not just is not the, the, the dark side of, or the balancing side of, of reality. Evil is personal. The devil is a person. He's got a personal attributes. And the spirits have personal attributes, the evil spirits. Just like good has a name. It's God. Except, of course, there's no comparison between the two of them. So, but this is, this is quite a boast. But what can Jesus be expected to do with thousands of tormenting, powerful, and violent demons inhabiting the one man like Roman soldiers like the Roman soldiers occupying Israel. What can Jesus be expected to do with literally thousands of unclean spirits inhabiting this man? Well, that's when we get, you know, that's what this story shows us. Jesus delivers. So this man or the spirit in him, begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country and, you know, rather send us into those pegs. Now, it's kind of a strange passage, but it seems like the unclean spirits are, to some extent, territorial. They want to stay in their own territory. Uh, and look, of course, we know that evil spirits are not omnipresent, right? They're only in one place at one time, and uh, there might be some kind of organization in, in amongst their... Uh, the, the hierarchy in some way, uh, but uh, at least they're not in they're only one place at one time, so they may be an area, so that's possible. But it also suggests that they're desperate for a body. They're desperate to express themselves uh, through, or what they want to do is express themselves through a person, and if not a person, at least in this case, through an animal. But of course, what happens is the pigs were so disgusted they, they committed suicide. So that, uh, I'm not sure if that's what really happened. But the, uh, it was counterproductive. The, pig, the, the pigs died and the spirits lost their body uh, that they were seeking to inhabit. So quite interesting. But what this passage shows is the unclean, deadly and destructive nature of evil but it also shows the awesome power of Jesus, greater than any, greater than the most powerful of evil spirits. Jesus, just by his word, cast these things out. Praise the Lord.
Now, the final part of the passage is the interpretation of these events because in the Gospel of Mark, when things happen, quite often we get little... We get, in, in, we get little clues as to how people were reading it, how they were seeing it, how they were understanding it, and that'll help us interpret what's going on. So the herdsmen fled. They told it in the city and literally in the fields, and people came to see what's happened. Man, this is amazing. And they came to see Jesus, and they saw this demonized man, the one who previously had a legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid, it says. The people from the surrounding area, they saw and heard what had happened. They were afraid. Guess what? That's the right response, first of all. It's right to have that awe and fear when Jesus acts in power. It is a fearful thing. It's right. And it's a wonderful thing. In the previous account, right before this passage, immediately before this passage, when Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves and calms the storm, the disciples were afraid. It, and they were greatly afraid. And they said, they, it literally says they feared a great fear. It's kind of a way of saying, uh, they were really afraid. But then they said, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's what they said in Mark 4.41. You see, they were afraid, but their fear... In their fear, they asked the right question. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's exactly the question Mark wants his readers to ask when they read that passage. But these people, when they see what Jesus has done, this deliverance of this man sitting there, but his clothes on, he's in his right, man, right mind, sitting down, totally transformed, utterly transformed. They're afraid. It sounds like they're on the road to asking the next right question. Who is this then? But they don't. They ask Jesus to leave. They ask Jesus to leave. Wrong, <laughs> right? They fear, right. They ask him to leave, wrong. This, by the way, is not an uncommon reaction to the presence of God and the presence of Jesus and, and when, God, when Jesus acts to do something good and powerful and wonderful. People get afraid and they want to retreat to their former lives. my notes gone. Here we are. So what about, what about the reaction of the man himself? This is the reactions. Part one, fear, and then go away Jesus. That's, that's the sadness of this story, right? What about the man himself? It says this, as Jesus was getting in the boat, he said, okay, I'm leaving. The man begged him that he might be with him. I think that's a good response. He wants to be with Jesus. He'd been set free. We see other people in the Gospels who are healed and, and follow Jesus. And Jesus says to him, no, this is a curious passage. The demons ask permission to go into pegs and Jesus says yes, permits him. The man asks to be with Jesus and he says no. 
That sounds rather odd, except that Jesus has another plan for this man. He has another plan for this man. He wanted to be with Jesus. And look, back in chapter 3 of Mark, verses 14 and 15, we read that Jesus appointed 12 people to be named apostles so that they might be with him and be sent out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Uh, That sounds interesting. Uh, But Jesus had a plan for him. And he says, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that's exactly what he did. He went away and he began to proclaim, not only in, his, you know, in the whole Decapolis, not only his hometown, his, but his whole region, how much Jesus had done for him. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus says, tell him how much the Lord has done for you. He proclaimed how much Jesus had done for him. And Mark is pointing out here that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. So, absolutely right. Jesus sends him, the man who has been delivered, and tells him to proclaim what the Lord has done for him. And he does it even more than he was asked to do. Now, the final reaction is on the final phrase of this of this uh, passage and it says everyone marveled or everyone was amazed that's reactions part three is what happens the when and what happens everyone was amazed as people as he told this story in his cities he went out and told what jesus had done for him guess what people were amazed there's a, a theme of amazement running through the gospel of mark often people are amazed when jesus does these amazing things But there are two kinds of amazement in Mark. There is the amazement of faith, when people say, that's amazing. Could this be the Messiah? That's amazing. I'm going to follow him. And then there's the amazement of unbelief, which is say, that's incredible. I don't believe it. And so both of these happen in the Gospel of Mark. But this, I think, is the amazement of faith. They hear this story and they get amazed. And listen, Jesus is amazing. Isn't that right? He is amazing. And the verb here for marveling or being amazed is another verb which indicates ongoing action. They just kept on being amazed. That's, that's, by the way, Mark's little way of saying to us also as we read this passage, yep, we should be amazed (laughs) with the amazement of faith that marvels at God, marvels at Christ and sees what he does. Let's finish this with some conclusions. The demon, when evil meets Jesus, it reacts to the presence of Jesus and it resists his will. It reacts to the presence of Jesus and it resists his will by all kinds of manipulation and lies and all sorts of things. But it must, evil must submit to Jesus. So that's, that's about evil. Who is, we ask the question, who is Jesus revealed to be in this passage? First of all, start with the last thing we said about him. He's amazing. Secondly, we discover that he's Jesus, son of the most high God, and he's Lord. Jesus, son of the most high God and Lord. That's who he is. And what does he do? He goes to the land of the Gentiles and he delivers the demonized. He restores. The evil reacts and resists, but Jesus 
restores. Praise the Lord. That's who he is. Let's think about Jesus in this passage. He's greater and more powerful than the worst evil you could imagine. Greater and more powerful than the worst evil you could imagine. He has divine authority as the Son of God and Lord. He sets people free and then he sends them out. How are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? We've got about seven things here. I'm going to name them fast. Number one, run to Jesus. Don't walk, run. Number two, recognize the nature and strategies of evil. Recognize the nature and the strategies of evil. The three things to recognize here. Right? Number one, you're the, the nature and strategies of evil. Number two, that you're in Jesus' world, not your rationalist world. You're in his world. It's not, by the way, Jesus' world is not irrational. It's just non-rational sometimes, but it's not irrational. And you need to recognize who Jesus is. So you, if you recognize who Jesus is, you, you recognize that you're in Jesus' world. We just live in it. We recognize the nature and strategies of evil, even in our own lives. Then we run to him. We receive our deliverance. Receive your deliverance. Praise the Lord. And then respond in obedience to his call. Respond in obedience to his call. And what is that call? To go out and relate, to relate what has happened to you, to, to, to retell over and over that story of what Jesus has done for you, the great things the Lord has done for you. To respond in amazement, to respond in obedience, and to relate, to keep on being amazed. Praise the Lord. And... As we see in the Gospel of Mark, that what the Jesus does, the disciples also do. It's also our respon responsibility to release the demonized, to release the demonized and to deliver them in Jesus' name. This is a passage that's so full of mysteries and, and in, in curious things, but it's got such a powerful message. When evil meets Jesus, it resists and reacts, reacts and resists, but Jesus restores. As we run to him, we receive our deliverance and we respond to his call because we recognize who he is. And, we, and he sends us out to tell the story, the amazing story of the amazing Jesus and to release others who are demonized and in trouble. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord. You are astonishing and amazing. We marvel at your greatness, your power your compassion, your deliverance of your victory over the darkest of evil and the most powerful of evil spirits. That you 
are above them and you have authority over them and you have come to set the captives free. Lord, in Jesus' name, let us recognize you, run to you, receive our deliverance and respond to you by going into the world and retelling this story and relating what you've, had, what you've done for us and in our turn, releasing the oppressed in Jesus' name. Father, you're so good. You're so good. Father, in Jesus' name. And I just pray for anybody listening or here today that needs to run to Jesus, perhaps for the first time, to say, be my Lord, my Savior, my Deliverer. Set me free from the evil and the anguish in my life. Pray for those ones to do to be because they're free now in Jesus' name to do that. We thank you, Lord. Amen. you guys to sing along with us, um, but I also want you guys to spend some time to think, to worship, put your heart in a position of just awe and wonder of who our God is, who our Lord Jesus is, and to remember that our God is greater anything, as John said, as his word says, whatever you're going through, whatever struggles you're going through. wash over you, or sing them to yourself, sing them to others. This is how I find my battle. This is how I find my battle. This is how I find my battles. This is how I find my battle. This is how I find my battle.
God, the battle belongs to you. Every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle is I want to fight. When I fight, I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Almighty fortune. You go before us, nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows, you win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Almighty fortress, you go